You are listening to Investing Matters, brought to you in association with London Southeast. This is the show that provides informative, educational, and entertaining content from the world of investing. We do not give advice, so please do your own research. Hello, and welcome to the Investing Matters podcast. My name is Peter Higgins. You can find me at Conquers3 on Twitter. And today I have the huge privilege of speaking with Keith Hiscox, the CEO of Hardman & Co, a London-based multidisciplinary financial consultancy investment research firm, employing highly experienced analysts and professionals with a broad range of capital markets experience. Hardman & Co also happens to be the longest established commissioned research provider in the UK. Very good afternoon to you, Keith. Good afternoon to you. Okay, Keith, I'd like to start this conversation with you um, because you've got, from 1979 here, I've got in my notes, um, investment role, and you've accumulated a vast amount of investment experience in the investment industry, knowledge, etc. And um, I think our listeners are really, really lucky to get your insights today. But I'd like to start the conversation uh, with what I'm led to believe is a very, very early start, a very early interest in the stock market. So please, can you tell us about that, please, Keith? I think what you're referring to is when I was at school, I was a bit cheeky to a teacher in uh, a first year of senior school, and uh, I got detention. Uh, mm-hmm. And in detention, um, I was required to copy out chunks of the Financial Times. So I'm copying out f- chunks of the Financial Times. And I think, actually, this is really interesting. And so immediately afterwards, I took out a student subscription to the Financial Times. That was at the age of 11. Amazing. Amazing. Love that story. Thank you ever so much. Now, you continued that interest and ended up going to the University of Oxford, mate, Oxford University, um, which you got your master's degree in philosophy, politics and economics. Um, And Oxford's got a huge reputation via its PPE graduates and producing UK Prime Ministers, Chancellors of Exchequer, Government Cabinet Ministers and politicians. Were you ever interested in a political career path, Keith? Well, I was, but um, I thought I'd first of all go off and make some money in the city uh, in order to finance probably a rather lesser paid uh, role (laughs) in politics. Um, But, you know, you get sucked into the city. It's intellectually very challenging and interesting. And the trouble with politics is it's... A very tricky job um you know you can lose your um role through no fault of your own you know you, if you're an mp you can lose your seat you could have done a great job and whatever but your party is just out of favor you know you could have been for the last whatever it is 13 years you could have been a phenomenal um guy in the labor party but not got the chance to serve in cabinet because you're out of office and you know your time might have now gone so it's a very tough job. It's very badly paid, frankly. I mean, people think politicians are paid a lot of money. They're not. I reckon that 80% or more of politicians could earn more money doing something else than they do as a politician. And, and you know, that decision of mine was long before the issues about social media and all this trolling, etc. You know, it's a, it's, a, it's a tough job. And, I'm, you know, I don't think I'd want to do it these days. No, I love that response. Now, do you, do you know anybody from your intake from when you're doing your master's that actually went into politics? Anybody, any, I know, any quite, a, your own I know quite a few, you know. Um, 
Uh, and uh, in fact, I was at dinner with a uh, former cabinet minister uh, a couple of months ago, and, and he was complaining about how little money he'd made over the years. You know, he's a very eminent uh, cabinet minister. Um, but, you know, he could have made a lot more money for his family and that doing something else. Indeed. Now, I want to talk about your career path now. Uh, please just share with us your greatest lessons and experiences from 1979 to 2001, where you went from being a graduate trainee at James Capel Stockbrokers to equity sales and corporate roles at Wood Mackenzie, Horgavet, Lang Cruishank, and Schroeder Solomon, which is, I think, was Citibank as well at some stage. Can you give us a little bit of that, Keith, your history behind all that and some of the experiences during that time, please? Yeah, so I, I don't come from a city family. I, don't, I knew absolutely nobody worked in anything in the city. And I think one of the um, understandable errors that people make is they think of the city as one thing. But actually, there are lots of different sorts of jobs within it that have got different kinds of requirements of skill sets. And because... I didn't really understand all of those. One of the reasons I chose James Capel uh, was that it gave me a nine month training program where I spent a month in every department. And so I knew a little bit more uh, by the end of that than I did uh, than I did at the beginning. So, um, you know, as I say, the first lesson is it, it's not all the same thing. I mean, we call it investment banking these days. There are lots of different roles within it. Um, I decided that I was most interested in equity markets um, because what I like is the way in which um, uh, economics and politics interact. Um, and so, you know, one minute you can be talking about the macro um, issues affecting uh, markets or the economy. Another minute it might be political issues. Another minute it might be business models. So um, that's really why I've mainly focused on equities and uh, and it's institutional equity so i've had a career advising uh the top fund managers in the uk about what they should be doing with their portfolios and then alongside that i've done quite a lot of work in the corporate space where i've advised companies or done fundraising uh for companies or takeover bids all, all that sort of stuff um and there's a lot of excitement to all of that because when you come in each day You've got no idea what's going to happen. I mean, you know some of what's going to happen. You know, you've got to set results coming from BP or that whatsoever. But things just come out of nowhere and you've suddenly got to reorientate yourself and think, well, what does that mean for the rest of the market? Um, uh, and you're also kind of making the news in a way, particularly when, you know, you're, you're doing a takeover bid or raising a large sum of money. You know, and that's that's all very exciting. I think the business, I think what might be interesting to your listeners is that that business changed quite a lot over, over time. So I joined before Big Bang. So Big Bang was a, a government shakeup of the regulations. The city was a pretty cosy kind of place before that. Um, and it became much more um, entrepreneurial and sort of aggressive, really, after that. Before Big Bang, all these firms were partnerships um uh, after that they became companies largely companies like every other company so that was a change we used to only be able to have one capacity you could either be a broker or a market making couldn't be both that changed with big bang um, and i think the way in which businesses made their money changed 
So today a broker really makes its money out of um, fundraisings and takeover bids. It's not really out of uh, trading in the share, the existing shares of, of quality companies. Um, whereas when I first started out, you, I think you made more money out of trading shares than you did out of fundraising. And that's one of the reasons why there's less research around because there's no money to pay for it really. Um, so these firms have, have, have changed quite a lot. I mean, the core of what they do, which is to raise money um, to help investors, professional investors and retail investors in some cases, uh, make their minds up about what to buy and what, and what to sell. That's still there, but the way in which you make money has changed really quite dramatically. No, absolutely has. Now, I want to touch on the first 20 years there from 79 to 2001. Who were your role models, Keith, coming into the market? It's a young chap. Um, you know, who were your champions? Who, who gave you that sort of feeling that I belong here? You know, I could do well. You know, who was championing your, you? Um, I think some of the guys I worked for, um, you know, different firms be, before Big Bang, as I said, they were partnerships. And they were a bit like golf clubs, really, in that they were a bunch of like-minded people who recruited people who were like them. So uh, you'll be amused about the fact that I think I was approached by Casanova, which is the most blue-blooded firm historically, three times. And every time the recruiter said to me, oh, it's all very different now. You know, they'll take grammar school boys, which is what I was. Well, it never happened, did it? <laughs> <laughs> I never got the job. Fair loss, Keith. Uh, whereas other firms were based upon, you know, meritocratic backgrounds or whatever, you know. And and um, I, I think, you know, one of the areas that I was particularly interested in was in the corporate space. And there were, before 88, uh, 87, there were three big brokers in the market. Casanova was one of them. I worked for Hawkevet. And there was another firm called Rowan Pittman. And basically, they sewed up the market, certainly amongst the, the FTSE companies, in all the corporate transactions. Um, and it was extraordinary to watch the way that people operated. Um, you know, we had a we had a fantastic guy at Horgovet called Peter Minotshagen. Um, and if you read his obituary, he's absolutely right, which is he acted in the interests of his clients, not the firm. And um, I always thought when I was talking to fund managers, for example, I was really being employed by them, not by my firm. My job was to look at everything that we're doing, you know, the ideas we've got today, um, what the analysts are telling me and work out which bits fitted my clients. So I had to get to know my clients very well. And so, you know, you get, let's say, 10 stories in a morning meeting and, um I'd go through those stories and say, well, you know, these two will work for this client, but the rest of them won't. And so you, you tailor it. So you became really quite close to the clients because you understand all, almost as well as they do how they run their funds and therefore what sort of things they're looking for. So I always felt my, you know, my salary was, uh, my bonus was paid by my clients, not my firm, really. I think that's a really good ethos to have. Um, so, so going back to what you say about Casanova and the roles there and the meritocracy of getting certain jobs or not getting certain jobs, you, you ended up as the CEO of um, Metzler, if I pronounced that correctly. Um, please can you tell us about how that came about and the different dynamics then, because obviously you're leading, you're building the culture of a, of a firm. 
you know, you've got all that autonomy. Um, Tell us about that, please. So that one, that one's an unusual one because, in a sense, it didn't get off the ground. So, as a German bank, a long-established German bank, wanted to build yeah. a business in London, and so they came and sought me out to go and do that. Um, it didn't, it didn't take off because the bank itself had to pull back because of its own financial issues before we'd launched. Oh. So I went and got a job somewhere else as a result. But you know, you're right to say I've, I've, you know, I've run a number of firms or parts of firms in part of my career. Yeah, because there's family-owned banks, so I thought there might be some dynamics there with that. So, okay, so we, we get to 2002, 2009, um, role firstly as head of equities, you know, from graduate to head of equities in 20 years. Um, head of equities sales at Panmure Gordon, and then the same role at Evolution Securities. Please can you share us the role, what it encompasses there, and what you did, during that tenure at both entities, please? So the main role of that is um, what the firm will have is a group of salesmen whose job is to service institutional fund managers. And the job of head of sales has got several roles. Part of it is to say, well, who's best for which client? Um, oh. Because, as I said earlier, different clients have got different sorts of approaches. Right. There are some clients that focus on really deep understanding of a, of a company. You know, they might like balance sheets, knowing everything about the balance sheet. There are others that are sort of maybe surfing over the market more because they're looking at, you know, bonds as well as equities or something like that. There are different sorts of characters, just as there are in life. You know, you make friends with people who are generally fairly similar to you. So part of the job of equity sale, head of equity sales is to work out who's best for whom. Um, and then to go, you know, and, and to keep up some kind of contact with all the clients um, to help understand that. The other thing is to motivate the team and to um, uh, get the best out of what's coming through. So, for example, um, let's say we've done an IPO in, a, in something. Um, I would expect us to do all the trading in the IPO after that because we know who owns every share at the start and we've probably talked to everybody in the market and got their view you know some people might have said well i'm not going to be a buyer at the price you're doing it at but if it fell by 10 percent, then i would be a buyer some people who got it in the uh, you know in the ipo would be saying well you know it's a long-term holding while others might say well you know if it flips up 20 percent i'd say so we should know more about all sides of the market than anybody else and so we should dominate the trading post-IPO. Uh, another part of that would be I'd, I'd have to do things like help to price an issue. So whether it be an IPO or a fundraising, uh, you know, my understanding of the market and of investors' attitudes to the particular stock or the particular sector at that moment should help me to understand what's the right price for doing a deal. Um, you know, there's no magic answer to it but it comes from a feel as to um, um, the market's attitude towards something I'd do that and I'd also be liaising with the corporate department and with the research department that, that's what that's what the role involves Brilliant I love that full response Keith and it's really interesting what you said there about helping to um, gauge the price of the issue um, or the fundraise um, how does that work sometimes when you may have 
a slightly more positive outlook as to the valuation versus what the company may have. They might be a bit tentative, maybe, or vice versa. Well, that's where the discussion comes in. And, you know, I mean, yeah. if if you're the company, you should listen to the advice. I mean, the, you know, I often come across companies who know a lot about their business, but they don't know how investors look at their business uh, because they don't talk to investors day in, day out. So, you know, one of my bugbears is... Um, there are some providers in our world who say, what's the best way of getting your message across, Mr. CEO? Well, it's an interview with you, Mr. CEO, which is the industry. <laughs> There's nothing wrong with it, with an interview with a CEO or a CFO. Or you know, that's all valuable information, but it's not the whole answer because the CEO might know how his business is doing. He might know how it's doing compared to other businesses in his sector, but he's not going to understand how investors think about his sector or his company in the same kind of way, because he doesn't talk to investors day in, day out. Um, you know, there's, there, there are waves of fashion. I mean, I remember we did a fundraising for a client of ours last year. Uh, it's a fantastic business. And the reason for raising uh, the money was they had a load of orders in which they needed to put some capacity down to fulfill. So, you know, it's not, it wasn't speculative or anything like that. It's a great reason to raise money. But because of the attitude of the market at the time and what was going on, even very, very good opportunities and very, very good companies struggled. Yeah, it's understanding that sort of thing. There are times when, you know, there are times when any rubbish can get away. There are times when nothing can get away and it's kind of understanding all of those sorts of things um that are part of the role really fantastic response love that keith thank you very much now um keith we're going to move now to 2009 you became yep. a founding partner for the independent research firm agency partners please can you tell us a little bit about that venture because a precursor to to hardman and co okay so um uh, agency Partners, which is still going as a business, um, is a specialist. Uh, it writes research and distributes it. Uh, at, it doesn't do any corporate finance work. It doesn't have any market making. It's it's um, part of a cadre of, in, of uh, independent institutional research firms. Uh, there are quite there are there are several of them. I mean. You know, they don't generally their materials not available to the retail investor. So um, uh, I and a couple of friends founded this business um, to do just that, to, uh, you know, we started with one fantastic analyst in defence and aerospace. He's still there um, and then added some others. Um, and we went out and established a firm from nothing. Um, you know, tough work, um, but quite exciting. Um, uh, and it followed on from, you know, increasingly what what was happening was that the the traditional business model of stockbroker uh, or investment banker was getting harder and harder um, because increasingly it was relying upon corporate fees, and that sort of changes people's behaviour. Um, so that's that's why that's why we established agency partners. It's still going. It's great business. It's got some good analysts. Um, I, I spent three years there. Much there. Now, Keith, you were you were then part of a, a group of investors that acquired Hardman and Co. 
in late um, 2012. Please, can you tell us firstly what initially attracted you to Ardman and Co, given what you were doing at um, Agency Partners, and um, and what your initial aspirations were as a collective back in 2012? Yeah, so um, as I've already suggested, you know, the, the traditional business model was getting harder and harder. Um, I, I put that into a little bit of context. If you went back in time, what would happen is stockbrokers used to have really grotty offices and pay small salaries. Well, I guess they weren't small by the general, um, you know, uh, compared to the average, but they were quite small, but they had very volatile top lines, all right? If you do a few deals in a year, you can, it makes a huge difference. And so to reflect that, what firms did was to have very generous bonus schemes. So they kept, they kept their basic costs very low so that even in the bad years, they could still cover those costs. And then in the good years, they could pay out sizable sums of money. Um, uh, that got more and more difficult for lots of reasons, one of which was the ridiculous reaction to the global financial crisis of saying, uh, you know, investment bankers' bonuses are too big. They're incentivized to do deals that, you know, that may not be in the public interest. Uh, I'm sure the regulators and politicians thought that would de-risk the business. It did exactly the opposite, because what happened was that firms went and increased salaries. I mean, I have friends in the city who had their salaries doubled overnight because, because there was a limit on the bonus that you could pay. Well, did that make it safer? No, it made it much worse <laughs> because mm. your basic costs suddenly shot up. Um, so all of that was going on and the job was becoming more and more about fundraising, less and less about talking about research to uh, institutional clients. And um, I, I just thought the traditional model was really difficult, getting more and more difficult. I thought about retiring actually at that point and I thought I'll go and have a look at different business models. And I was vaguely aware of the sponsored research model. So I spent some months looking at that and talking to people in the industry. Um, and it struck me, I mean, I have to, I'd love to say I'd heard of MIFI too, and it was going to have a big impact. So I, I'd be lying if, if, if I said that. I hadn't heard I'm of that. I'm going to speak about that later on, yes. <laughs> I just thought there was going to, you know, there was going to be, that, that, that was the solution. Sponsored research was the solution to the crisis in research, or part of the crisis, at least in research. And the other thing I thought is that, it would provide a way to monetize the skill set of investment analysts and capital markets professionals in ways that banks and brokers don't really want to do. Um, so having come to that, it came to my attention through a contact that Hardman & Co, which had been set up by a guy called Roger Hardman uh, a long time ago in the 90s, uh, might be for sale. So um, I put together a little consortium and we went and bought it from, uh, from Roger. Um, and you know i've run it ever since then brilliant no very well done and, and and congratulations on it still striving after you know 11 years or so now tell us about your role at hardman and co please what it encompasses followed by an overview of hardman and co its solutions scope and examples of companies um that it works with please keith Okay, so I'm CEO, which means I'm sort of technically responsible for everything, but obviously I can't I can't manage absolutely every aspect of the business. So my main focus is on the quoted company side of the business. 
uh, working with the clients, working with the analysts. Um, so that's my main role. Um, in terms of Hardman, so I've already said it's, you know, about 30 years old. Um, the bit it's best known for um, is sponsored research on credit companies. So that's writing investment research about quoted companies paid for by those companies. We're, we're very open about that. And we've got some protection of editorial freedom, etc. cetera. Um, and I think if you ask people in the market about that, they would say we're differentiated by the quality and the depth of our work and by the spread of our distribution. So our research is available to everybody and is read by everybody from, you know, the world's biggest institutional investors through to retail. So that's that's the bit that you can most obviously see. We do. Uh, we are also known for publishing quite a lot of thought leadership pieces um, on things like liquidity analysis or the tax revenues raised by companies, um, how investor engagement has changed over time, all that sort of thing. So, you know, for example, um, the Treasury has recently published a review into investment research um, uh, chaired by uh, Rachel Kent, and you'll find our work is quoted in, in their report. Um, we've got a relatively similar business in the tax-enhanced space. So that's writing about EIS funds, IHT, investing, all that sort of thing. And then the bit that's less obvious, uh, but in some ways the most interesting, is our consultancy work. So this is where I said before that you know we've found ways of monetizing our analysts uh, in areas where the banks and, and brokers don't want to. So that's stuff like valuation of private companies, liquidity analysis. And we're doing that for a variety of firms. So, you know, we're doing that for court cases. Uh, we're doing that for authorized corporate directors. So these are the people who stand behind OICs administering them. Um, and where, you know, the fund, so one of the problems with, uh woodford was he told the acd you know this stock is worth you know this private company's worth this amount well how do they know that's right um that's the sort of thing where we'd come in we do it for stock exchanges there's a whole variety of things they're really interesting um but you'll never be able to read about it because it's obviously all confidential stuff so that's broadly that's broadly what we do as a firm Brilliant. I, lo I love that you've covered all those different aspects and touched on the Woodford valuations that were given as well. Um, can I just touch, go back a, a slightly, Keith, and ask you a little bit more about the Hardman & Co. EIS solutions and reviews, because I want to touch on something another, a, a bit later on uh, regarding it, that space. Okay, so um, that's a space that's had research in the past, but it's pretty light touch. And in fact, we were asked to get into the space by one of the industry associations because essentially most of the research historically focused on the tax benefits, not yes. what's the underlying business or the underlying fund, you know, how has it performed, what are the risks in it? Um, and so we've brought a rather different approach to it. Um, and again, that's all, I mean, it's mainly used by um ifas that sort of thing but there's no reason why the man in the street can't read it i would say as should be true of all sponsored research firms we don't carry a recommendation or a target price um what our work is whether it's in the eis space or whether it's in the credit company space is it's raising the understanding of the company 
or a fund. It's looking at what the risks are and what the opportunities are. There are some forecasts in there, but you can see what the uh, factors involved in the forecast might be. But we do not have a recommendation or a target price. And the reason for that is if we did have a recommendation or a target price, we'd have to go through a know your client exercise before sending it out. So I'd have to say, Peter, look, before I can tell you whether you should be buying this stock, I'd like to know how much money you've got under management. You know, what are, you, what are your outgoings? What are the risks? What are your hopes and aspirations? And only then can I say, well, okay, this might be appropriate for you. Right? Um, by not having a recommendation or a target price and by basically raising the understanding of the audience, um, you don't need to go through that exercise. I love that you've replied to that that way um, because my, my other question, and I'll still ask you this because I think you've almost covered it in its entirety, is the fact that how do you and your team ensure objectivity when assessing the qualities of a commissioned research client? And you've almost covered it all there, Keith. Well done. There's a bit more than that to it. So um, so let me take you through what we do. And many firms do oh, sure. uh, exactly the same as what we do. Some do it slightly differently, but I'll, I'll just describe us. So first of all, before we take a client on, we'll have a what we call a commitment committee. And that committee consists of independent members. And they're, they're looking for two things. They're looking for credit quality. You know, if we write this and do this, are we actually going to get the money in for it? But second, <laughs> about what's the, what's the impact on our reputation? Will we to do this? And that reputation is pretty important to us because what I've said before about working for law firms and stock exchanges and corporate directors. So that's the first thing. Now, obviously, you can take something on and things subsequently go wrong. That's life, isn't it? Uh, so that's the first thing. The second thing is we employ a bunch of professionals. You know, typically our analyst has got 25 years experience. They don't want to put all of their reputation at risk by writing about something they don't believe in. So the next thing is, and I should say, going back to the commitment committee, we don't take everything on that we're shown. I mean, we were shown an internet business that IPO'd a couple of years ago, uh, or crypto business, I should say, IPO'd a couple of years ago, and we struggled to work out how it made money. And so we said, well, we just don't want to don't want to write about it because we don't understand it. Um, we um, uh, what then we'll do is so the, what the research note is designed to do is. Look at the business, look at what it does, look at what the opportunities are, what the risks to that are. We're not going to ignore the risks um, of it. Uh, and you know, look at the valuation, look at the forecast, all that sort of thing. But I think there's some critical things in our contract that should give an investor comfort. Um, so all of our contracts will say, before we publish a piece of research, we will show it to you, the client, the company or the fund. And you've got the right to say, uh, there's a factual error here, we'd like you to correct that. You've got the right to say, you've put a commercially sensitive fact in that we don't want to be in the public domain, so we can take that out. Beyond that, the only right you've got is to tell us not to publish. You cannot tell us what we're going to say. Now, obviously there's a discussion takes place. And if there were something tricky, we'd give, them, we'd give the company the opportunity to respond. But the ultimate sanction is to say, no, that's what we think we want to write. And um, if you don't like that, then you can tell us not to publish. 
the contract's very clearly written you still pay us so you cannot hold us to ransom and and obviously if that happens we're quite likely to lose the contract in time but so be it uh what you should ask is how often has it actually happened and the answer is i can think about two examples in the last 10 years and i'll give you one um we had an insurance company we wrote about <clears throat> first couple of notes were fine we then get to an we then get to a set of results and we say or our analyst says look you're going to need to do a fundraising of some sort. You're either going to need to have a rights issue or you're going to have to do what's in insurance markets called a quota share agreement, which is I share the risks and the benefits of your book with another company. Um, and uh, they vehemently disagreed with us um, and um, wouldn't let us publish. Um, and of course, what happens a few months down the road is I have to do exactly what we suggested they were going to do. But, so, um, you know, we're, we're vehemently independent about that. You know, we, we have, you know, we're careful who we take on. We obviously have a discussion about it. But the ultimate, the ultimate sanction is we've got these rights within the contract. I think that's superb, Keith. And, I, and it's brilliant to hear you say that because I think there's lots of questions out in the market, especially from private investors that don't understand. And they make up all these assumptions and, and they've got it completely wrong. If it's independent, independent research, it's got to be independent. So I love the fact that you're sticking to your knitting and going, you know, we're either going to let us publish this or you're not, you know, but we're not going to just be railroaded into um, being a paid client that just does what just nods and does what he's told. So I, I'm absolutely phenomenal. Thank you for doing that. Um, Keith, I'm speaking now regarding the private investors, okay? And um, you being the CEO, you've got all this background in equity sales and leading businesses, etc. On a spreadsheet, on a research note, what's the two or three things that has to jump off the page for you, Keith, to say this is a quality business, this is a quality investment company, this is a really good company for my clients and other people to be involved in, potentially? Okay. Um... So the first thing I would do whenever looking at something is to work out what type of business model it is, because companies fall into different types of business model. You know, there are businesses that are running um, an industry in decline that can be very profitable. Uh, there are businesses that are growth businesses by organic growth. There are businesses that are growth businesses by acquisition. Um, uh, you know, there are businesses that grow based on their technology. So the first thing I think you want to do is to say, what sort of business is this? Once you understand that, then go and compare it to other similar businesses to understand what sorts of things investors are going to look at. So if I take two extremes, if I looked at a business that, um, you know, a firm that had a high dividend yield, you might say, well, that's great. It's going to appeal to it to um, income investors. Well, professional income investors would say, okay, that's box one ticked. But what I want to know is what's the history of the dividend? Has it ever been cut? What's the cover of the dividend? So let's say the free cash flow cover. So, you know, are you paying out everything that you earn? And so that in the event that something goes wrong, you're going to have to cut that? Or is it covered several times and there's room for things to go wrong? So those are some of the questions that an income investor would ask. Whereas if I was investing in a early stage life sciences company, 
my questions would be completely different. It would be, okay, so what's this drug going to help? Um, how big is that market? How competitive is that market? Where's this drug got to in the approval process? Has the company got enough money to get it to the next stage of the approval process? They're, they're all very different kind of approaches. So the first thing is to work out what sort of company it is. And then that's going to tell you a tick list of the, of the questions you need to answer. Um, I mean, I was talking a few months ago to a business that's based around, it basically buys and builds. It's got a particular space and it buys things in that space. Well, what a professional investor will do is to say, right, OK, so let me understand what's happening in this space in, uh, in aggregate. Then um, how do you find acquisitions? How do you make sure you pay the right price? How do you integrate them? You can be good at some bits of that, and bloody awful at other bits. And you know, you need to think about, as I say, the first thing is you need to think about what business model it is. I'll, I'll take another example. You, you might think hotels are quite simple. They're not. There are sort of uh, three or four types of investors. So there are some firms that may not be quoted that specialize in finding sites and getting planning to build hotels. That's all they do, right? That's a particular skill set. There are other firms whose skill set is building hotels. And then once you've got it built, you've got two investors typically. Uh, you've got somebody who will own the site and somebody who will own the brand. So you may have a hotel that, you know, it is the Hilton or whatever. It won't be owned by Hilton. Almost certainly won't be owned by Hilton. You'll just be paying um, a franchise fee to use the name, get access to the booking system, etc. And in return for that, you've got to keep up certain standards. Right? That's a fairly low capital business. You don't need a, I mean, obviously you need a reputation, but you don't need a lot of capital to do that. On the other side, you've got investors in hotel property. That's a very capital intense business, but it's a different sort of business. So, you know, the first thing I do when looking at something is to think, what sort of business model is this? That's the first thing I think to look at. Um, the second thing I would do is I would think quite carefully about the presentation because there are some managements are brilliant at presentations, but they've got an awful business or they're awful at running it. And there are some managements that are awful at presentations have got a great business. And you've sort of got to see through that. And in a way, that comes from experience. When you've seen hundreds of these presentations, you sort of get a feel for it. Um, there we go. Fantastic response, Keith. Thank you ever so much for that. I think the beauty of the, of the reply is the fact it covers so many different bases and, and gets people to think. You've got to generate your own questions to get the right answers because the tendency is for a lot of investors to seek out the answers to the questions and you know doing the opposite way around. So yeah, thank you ever so much for that. Um, Keith, I want to talk now because you, you mentioned it and I wanted to get a bit more in depth and granular on this sort of question now, right? For the benefit of our global audience, please can you explain firstly, MIFID two and the rules, um, and then we'll get into a little bit more nuanced about it, please. Okay, so I'll talk about MIFID two as it refers to um, research. So 
So yeah, let me explain exactly. what happened before MIFID two. Before MIFID two, which stands for um, Markets in Financial Instruments to, um, Directive, um, MIFID two came into force. I think it was the third of January two thousand and eighteen, off the top of my head. Before that, what would happen is that um, fund managers would uh, pay for research and dealing in a combined way. Uh, and often the underlying client would have no idea about what was being spent. So let's say you're running the, you know, the Kent County Council pension fund. You'd, you'd give that to a manager to run and they'd tell you afterwards how it had done. They would decide how much dealing they should do, how often the fund should turn over. And they'd also determine how much research they wanted to pay for out of the fund. Um, and I think that the authorities, and actually this was really put, although this is a pan-European uh, ruling, it was the FCA that was really behind this one. And I think their feeling was there was some kind of cosy relationship between people in the city to pay themselves lots of money uh at the expense of investors um and you know they thought for example that fund managers should be paying for research as a cost of business you know why should it be coming out of the fund uh and so what mifid 2 did was to say we're going to separate the cost of execution from the cost of research uh and in future uh you can pay for research in two ways you can either go to your client so let's say you go you're running kent county council pension fund you can go to them and say look we need to spend x whatever it is pounds on research we'd like to agree with you what that figure is and then you can go out and then the fund manager can go out and spend it that was one way of doing it or well, the second way of doing it was to say um you the fund manager pay for it out of your own PL, pay for research out of your own PL. Now, in reality, what happened was that anybody who thought they were going to be able to go and get the client to pay for it lost funds under management. Because you can imagine being in a pitch. Uh, I've got somebody who says, well, we'll pay for it out of our own PL, and somebody else says, we'll pay for it out of your fund. You know, you're kind of one nil down, aren't you? Um, so pretty well nobody went for what's called the research payment account methodology. And out of that, what it said was you cannot take research for free from anybody because it's an inducement to deal with them. Um, now, before MIFID 2, broadly, every institution spoke to every broker. Right? Obviously, there are differences in the strength of the relationship, but broadly, everybody spoke to everybody. After MIFID 2, you could only speak to get the research from people that you'd paid for. So that dramatically changed the distribution and the influence of broking firms. Um, it also changed the consensus. Because up until that point, if you were a professional investor, I recognise if you're a retail investor, you didn't have access to this. But if you're a professional investor, you've got everybody's research. You could sit down there and sort of work out where the consensus was. Now, you only get research from the people you're paying for. 
So it's possible that you're, what you're seeing as a consensus is completely different to what another fund manager is seeing. Um, so that saw a decline in the payment for research, but, but actually that had been going on for a long while. So going back to what I've said about my career, the FT reckons that in the 10 years leading up to MIFID II, the secondary commission pool had fallen by two thirds. This just accelerated that. Um, and so tiny, tiny amounts were being paid for research, really. Um, there were two exemptions. There are two exemptions to that rule. The first is you're allowed to have a free trial with a broker for three months in any 12 month period. To decide whether you want to take them on, that sounds reasonable, doesn't it? Um, secondly, um, sponsored research can be consumed for free as somebody's the people who are subject to me if you're two are fund managers, right? Um, uh, so what the regulations say is um, if the research has been paid for by the issuer, i.e. by the company, and is generally available, well, that's kind of the definition of sponsored research, it's considered a minor non-monetary benefit in the hands of the recipient. So in a sense, you could argue that a sponsored research firm should have a bigger distribution list in the institutional market than a broker would have. Uh, it's a different kind of relationship, but broadly that's true. So that's that's what MIFID II did, right? In a way, it sort of evened up the market because before MIFID II, retail investors were a massive disadvantage to institutions. So if you think what an institutional uh, broking firm did was it published research, it was only available to institutions, it rung them up, it talked to them, you know, I, I'd ring out my clients and say, why well, analysts just come back from this meeting, I think we're going to reduce our forecast, all this, that and the other. Obviously, the retail market got none of that. In a sense, it levelled the playing field by making it more difficult for institutions. It didn't make it any easier for retail, but it made it more difficult for institutions. Since then, there was a... Um, a rather complicated change to try and help out small and mid-cap companies. Uh, so what the FCA said was, if the company's less than 200 million in market cap, it can be outside the scope of MIFID II. It was a very complicated definition of 200 million because it's on a um, uh, an annual trailing basis. So uh, as I said to the FCA at the time, I don't think anybody's going to take any notice of this whatsoever. And that appears to have been the case because it's too complicated. If you're the fund manager, stuff comes in and you've got to decide, uh, am I allowed to see this for free or can I not see it for free? You know, is it below 200 million? Was it below 200 million in the period? Was it above it? It's just too complicated. So most fund managers said, look, we'll either take nothing or we'll pay for something and we'll take all of your research. It's, just, it's just too complicated otherwise. Now, what the latest proposals are in the uh, Kent review published by Majesty's Treasury is that you can roll back MIFID too. I think the problem is the horse has bolted. Um, if you're going to have an impact, what you're saying is you want institutions to start charging their clients for research again. And that's going to be a very difficult conversation, isn't it? You've had it for free up till now. We'd like to go and charge you for it. We don't have to, but we'd like to have, you know, I just can't see that's going to have an impact really. But anyway, the rules have got a bit easier, but I think it's too late for, for most research. 
Thank you for that full response, Keith. I think that I found this piece of research myself as well, and it says, um, according to substantive, substantive research, a firm that analyzes investment research spend amongst asset managers, uh, their survey of 40 asset managers firms overseeing more than $12 trillion um, shows that the average research budget for 2023 decreased by 6.5%. And research budgets as a proportion of asset assets under management had dropped by 50, more than 50% since MIFID 2 was introduced. So the question I was going to ask you was, the proposed unbundling, I think they started talking about it June, July of this year, of MIFID 2, is the possibility that it could reverse the ongoing investment research decline, you know, money spent on it? I don't think so. Uh, okay. Some people might disagree with me. But I don't think so, because if you think what's got to happen, what's got to happen is the fund manager's got to go to its client and say, we now would like to charge you for research. Yeah. Well, if your competitor down the road says, well, we're not going to charge you for research. Now, in defence of, to some extent, the fund manager wants to charge for research, they, they might say, which is a perfectly reasonable position to hold, is that you're focusing on the wrong thing. The thing that's most important is net of all of the costs, what's the performance? And if our performance is better than the other guy down the road, then you shouldn't worry about how much you're paying for research because obviously it's working. That, that's, that's the argument that would be made. I think in reality, it's going to be quite difficult to do that. And that's one of the reasons why um, the review has talked about or recommends establishing a research platform to pay for research because they don't really think it's going to go back to the old system. Yeah, I think I think you're irritating what you said earlier about it. The horse has already bolted. They've left it too late almost. No, spot on, Keith. Now, I want to move slightly now to research, but more so on the ESG credential size. There seems to be more and more focus on that now as well regarding um, listed companies and asset management. Um, how is Ardman and Co involved in that? And have you seen much change since 2012 at Ardman and Co regarding companies being more proactive in that ESG space? Oh, I've certainly seen a lot of change. So, you know, uh, there are big parts of reporting accounts uh, around the issues. There are more and more specialists employed uh, in, uh, you know, to advise and to look at it. That's certainly the case and sort of a mini industry has, has been created. I think many investors are still struggling with it. It's not that they're against the idea that, you know, we should do something about the climate. The question is, what's the best way to do something about it and how you measure it? So, for example, there have there are a number of systems that are designed to judge what the ESG credentials of a company might be. Now, the problem with that is that there isn't a kind of an agreement. We're, we're not coalescing around one way of measuring it. And I've had many people, I mean, we've looked at incorporating some kind of score into our research in the way that you'd put down, you know, here's the PE or the dividend yield. Here's what the score is. When you go and look at it, there are hundreds of different ways of looking at it. But more important than that is I've come across companies which are considered the worst possible on one scoring system and the best possible on another scoring system. <laughs> so how do you undo that? And also, I always think when I look at these, when I look at problems, 
I always think of Al Murray actually when uh, you know in the pub landlord in his persona of the pub landlord yes. talking about Brexit. He always says whatever question somebody or whatever opinion somebody passes, you should always say, "Oh, it's much more complicated than that." Um, and 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 that's kind of true. So I notice in the papers what today Lego uh, are saying that you know they were thinking of moving across to recycled plastic to make their bricks, but actually that's going to have a more detrimental impact uh, on the environment than using new plastics. So, you know, there's lots of things like that. And I think we've sort of, we went through a period where everybody got terribly excited. And actually, ESG investing was working. You know, you were getting out performance as well. And that was because mm -hmm. of the weight of the money going into ESG. There's some evidence that, that that interest has waned a bit. And as I say, the practical things are, are quite difficult. I mean, I'd love to be able to put a score on the on on the, on our research that said this company is X, but I don't know what score it what score it should be because nobody can agree on what the uh, you know what the factors are and what the weightings of the facts are. It's a bit like there's a thing in economics called the happiness index. I don't know if you've come across that, Peter. Yes, I have. Yes, it basically says we shouldn't be measuring GDP; we should be measuring happiness. Now that sounds a great idea, doesn't it? <laughs> the trouble is. How do you measure happiness? What are the factors that you use and what's the weightings for the factors? Absolutely. No, I love that response, Keith. Thank you. It's absolutely fantastic. I love the fact you're touching the happiness index there. Now, we, we touched earlier on about um, the markets and everything else and e EIS. I want to cover this um, little bit here now to talk about what I saw in the weekend press as well. And it's basically, Keith, um, one estimate says that one third of all AIM shares are held for tax reasons. And that's around 30 billion pounds, including funds and investment companies. There is ongoing talk and speculation this weekend that Rishi Sunak's government could end um, the inheritance tax relief for AIM shares. Firstly, do you think IHT relief could be scaled back and, stop and then stopped? And secondly, what do you think would be the impact of AIM shares and related AIM funds and investment companies, please? Okay, so it's an it's an interesting field, uh, um, IHT, because on the one hand you'd say, well, very few people actually pay it, and it it would be easy for the counter argument to be, well, what the government's doing or what the Tories are doing is just helping out the rich; they're looking after their own. That'd be easy to cast them in that score, but it would appear from the polls that more people than is the case, think they might pay inheritance tax and that somehow it's unfair. So it seems to be more important. And if you think back, it derailed Gordon Brown, who wanted to go for an early election. I can't remember the years now. Wanted to go for an early election. And uh, George Osborne said, well, if they were elected, they'd introduce a million pound relief. And it derailed him. And he, uh, he uh, you know, the polls suddenly turned in favour of the Tories. And he postponed having an election until the last possible moment, and then and then uh, and then lost. So, lost. It feels as though it's something that should really be only of concern to natural Tory voters, you know, the wealthy. But it's the reality is it seems to have a bigger impact than that. I don't quite understand why, but you know, it's not the job of a politician, I suppose, to understand why in that sense. Uh, <laughs> the would they do something about it? Uh, uh, obviously, if they abolished it completely, 
then the value of release on uh, AIM um, would disappear and you wouldn't need to hold those shares. Um, however, I guess you'd still be worried about what happens if the Labour Party were to get in at the next election? Would they just roll the whole thing straight back? And so if you'd sold, you know, they might roll it back to what it was. And if you just sold all four of your own shares, you've lost the relief and you've got to start all over again. So I think it'd be, you'd want to see what happens there. And would it be rolled back for everybody? Uh, you know, or, uh, would the reliefs just be increased? I.e., you know, you could have one and a half million free of inheritance tax or whatever. Um, uh, I don't know. I mean, to say the whole thing would go in one go, I mean, it's pretty bold and I would suggest unlikely. So at the moment, I mean, there's, there was a worry before about the AIMIHT relief, not because IHT might be eliminated, but because the relief might be eliminated there was a bit of talk around that what's the benefit of it why do it um so yeah um it's a possible risk i have to admit and what you'll find is aim iht investors tend to be concentrated in certain things so you're i'm sure you know very well the rules you can't hold every aim share there are some companies that fail because they're in a trade that isn't covered um uh but you know you could buy for example uh, um i think uh, early oil and gas but you'd be mad to be doing that in a in a in a you know for a for an investment but about wealth preservation so they tend to focus on the same kind of thing so um what proportion it is of those it's difficult to tell i know of talking to somebody else in the industry uh, that's inquired of um, I'm doing a piece at the moment for somebody um, uh, a contact of mine has asked the revenue what's the cost of the relief and they won't give an answer I'm not sure they know the answer it's not that they're necessarily mm. it, but remember the way that IHT relief works is it's in arrears when somebody dies the executors submit the accounts for the estate. And it's then that you determine whether, you know, so you've got, you've got to prove, for example, you've held it for two years. It's a qualifying investment. You've got to go through all, only when that's done, do you then know that you've got relief? So it's very difficult to look today and say, oh, there is relief. I mean, I think we did a, um, we did a uh, freedom of information inquiry of the revenue around what things did you reject? And why? And they refuse to answer it on the basis while well, they're all individual cases. Wow. Well, I mean, the, the the stats that I was looking at the weekend, and I pulled some figures down here, is basically saying in 2022-23, there was 41,000 estates, mostly in the southeast of London, that paid IHT of 7.1 billion. And that from the most recent Treasury figures, it showed that only 3.76% of UK deaths resulted in a inheritance tax charge yeah so the numbers are, are, are tiny but obviously it affects um, the super wealthy obviously so that's maybe why they're going down it i'm going to stop you i so, don't think that's the case i think the super wealthy 
can avoid it very easily. Like, you know, if you're incredibly wealthy, you give away all your money seven years before you, more than seven years before your death. Of course. Sorry, you are correct. The poor, the poor don't pay it. It's the kind of the people in the middle that have got most, of, particularly those who've got most of their assets in a house, which yes. you can't tax plan on, um, that are caught. Agreed, Keith. Agreed. Absolutely agree. Absolutely agree. I was going to ask a, a slightly um, little nuanced question regarding the um, abolition inheritance tax would, would also then Im impact the EIS side of things, which your your firm is involved in, and it's on private potentially private markets, wouldn't it? Um, not directly. I mean, they can be the same sorts of assets, but an EIS is a different yeah. thing. So an EIS is not used really to offset wealth tax or inheritance tax. It's designed to um, offset income tax. So you get a release yes. get your income tax bill in that year um, uh, when you make that when you make that investment. And you know the idea is that those investments go into risky things, risky uh, areas that it's in the interest of the economy to develop. Okay, dokie. Right, I've got just a couple more questions for you, kid. I need to touch on very briefly some personal questions of yours. Um, with regards to you being a private investor now, Keith, in your own right, what access you've got to the market given your role? And um, when you are allowed to invest, what type of investor are you? Long-term investor, funds, equities, you know, global investor. What, what, what sort of investor are you, Keith? Okay, so, so first of all, um, because of my role, I am restricted in what I can do. So obviously I'm, I'm privy to uh, inside information at certain times, which I can't deal on. Um, and even even outside that, I'm restricted on what I can deal in, you know, uh, with regards to our existing clients. Um, so I think I'm relatively unusual in my space in that I'm a very long term investor. I've got several holdings that I've held for more than 20 years. Brilliant. Uh, uh, and I think, actually, if you look at a sort of investor, I think, let me talk about some of the things that I think people do wrong. The first is I think investors sometimes are like moths round a light. And I think stockbrokers are good at that. I have found stockbrokers, when they deal PA, they'll sell something because they've lost interest. There's nothing interesting happening with it. And something more exciting has come along over here rather than take a long-term view. And so they flip from one to another. That's sort of what day traders do, isn't it? The second yes. is um, I'm a great believer in getting rich very slowly. We're obviously, Brilliant. we'd all like to buy things that go up tenfold in the next month. The reality is there aren't many of those. And if you're looking for those, you're going to take massive risks, um, which, which are bad. Um, I think I made the point about presentation. So I'm, I'm fortunate, I'm, I'm very privileged in that I've been to thousands of presentations over the years. Uh, I'm not saying I get it all right, but I can spot what's a good story or whether there's a management pulling it up a bit too much or, or whatever. Um, I think I'll contradict in some ways what I've already said, which is I think it is possible to become an expert in something. You know, there's about 2,000 quoted companies. It's possible for you to know more about one company than virtually anybody else, any other investor. Um, uh I think one of the big problems that investors have is admitting you're wrong. Um, Absolutely. Uh, which is, and I've done it, 
Uh, and one of the advantages actually having my own investments is I've gone through the same kind of emotions as other investors, professionals have. So, you know, particularly if you've, if you've winkled something out, you think it's really interesting, it looks cheap, and then it falls in price, you go and buy some more, don't you? Because it's even, it's even better value, isn't it? And that keeps happening until you begin to realise, hmm, there's something wrong here I haven't spotted or I don't understand. And I think when you look at something, you should always... So I made that point about think what business model it is. I think the other thing is um, think what the issues are. So most companies or funds or sectors, there are about, let's say, half a dozen issues which are critical and which people have got different opinions on. I mean, a share price is essentially a consensus of lots of different opinions. All right. So I would always start by saying, right, what are the key issues at the moment? And what's the consensus view on that? Then I'll come to my view. There's no good saying, oh, my view is it's, you know, things are going to be a lot better this year at BP, you know, profits are going to double. Uh, if when you go and look, you'll find that, well, actually, that's what the consensus is going to make no difference to the share price whatsoever. Right. So I think understanding what those issues are, um, and sometimes they're wrong. So if I go back a few years, I talk about one of our old clients, Burford Capital, which is a litigation funder. Um, when they came to us, the first thing we did was to go out into the market and talk to investors about their attitudes towards it. And the comments you got back were, the first one was, oh, it's an ambulance chase. So, you know, it's immoral. I'm not going to invest in anything. No, no, it doesn't have any retail clients whatsoever. Um, you've completely misunderstood it. It's it's all about um, commercial clients. The second thing was, look, it's only got a market capital at the time, 250 million. If it doubles, it's going to make no difference to my portfolio. I don't know what to compare it with. I mean, that's a perfectly legitimate concern. And then, then we get the question that says, oh, um, uh, the actress um, classified it as a uh, non-equity instrument. Uh, which is a specialist type of investment company, what's the right discount to NAV? Well, hold on a moment, this is a growth business. Well, why, are you, why are you focusing on NAV? That's the wrong valuation metric. Indeed. Uh, and so what we did was to recast that story by saying, look, uh, and this is, the way, this is an interesting way of looking at things generally, as, as an example. Um, law is a growing part of the economy in, de in the developed world. We may not like the fact that it is, but it is, let's be honest. Uh, and in fact, the UK is one of the, if not the preeminent place for international cases, right? But it's actually very difficult to invest in because pretty well all the law firms are partnerships. Okay, there's a few that are now quoted, a tiny number that are quoted. Here's a way of investing in it through litigation funding. Second thing, though, is this is the biggest and the first investor in this space. It's like being the first professional investor in the stock market. I think you'd like to think you'd outperform. Um, and then the next thing to say is it's what we call an uncorrelated asset. So it's an asset, the success of which is not correlated with the economy, the stock market, the bond market. Success comes from picking the right cases and winning them. Right? That's a very interesting asset. It's a very different sort of asset. Once you start to understand that, you think, Oh, okay, I can see why that might appeal to investors. Um, so, so it's it's that was about changing the perception from what the 
three or four key views in the market were. Um, and then, you know, another thing uh, was um, reading statements properly. All right. Uh. Every morning I read lots and lots of statements. And there are some tips to get out to get out of that. The first is look at the front and see, are they pleased with their results or do they, do they leave the word pleased out or a similar word? The next thing is you'll often you'll often find the bad news is at the back end. Right? <laughs> oh, yes. And so you're looking for a paragraph that begins however or nevertheless. Right. Um, those are critical. Uh, and then the other thing about reading statements is about management changes, which can be quite important. Um, uh, and I did a podcast about that myself um, a few months ago, which you can look at on our website. But but broadly, it, it runs like this. There's about three people that really matter, which is the chairman, the CEO and the CFO. They're, they're the ones that you want to look out for. Obviously, people leave businesses and they move on. You know, they get a better job offer or something like that. That can still be bad news for the company if they were doing a great job. But you can't. Really. But look at the way. Look at the use of the language because there's a very careful use of language in our in our world. So what you're looking for is uh, somebody might be going because they've got a better job to go to. That's great. Well, it may not be good for the for the business you own, but what well, you're looking at, but you know, it's not bad news in the sense. Uh, they might be leaving because of ill health, um, you know, or a partner's ill health or something like that. Obviously, that's all sad. When you want to start to get worried is where they're going with immediate effect. Right? Because that sounds like there's been a fallout over strategy. Uh particularly if it's, say, the finance director and, again, with immediate effect, there's no handover period. That's sort of a sign. Uh, uh, or if it's coming up to the year end or it's gone past year end and they're doing the accounts, it might suggest that there's a hole in the account somewhere and the finance director is held responsible for it. Those, you know, it's never quite as... The language is never quite as blunt as that, but that's the sort of thing you're looking for uh, in those statements so so look out for that um generally companies are quite good at bullying themselves up they've generally got a whole team of advisors whose job is to sort of do that um it, it's the bad news that uh, you can you can find absolutely thorough and full response there keith absolutely fantastic thank you for sharing all those insights keith so my final question to you and thank you ever so much for being on the podcast if going back now to 1979, um, with regards to the investment industry, for the betterment of large and small investors, if there's one thing that you would change for the betterment of everybody, what would that be, please, sir? That's a very, very good question, actually. Um, I would like to go back to the system where market making is separate from, uh, from uh, agency broking. I think that's a, an unnecessary, having the two together is an unnecessary conflict of interest. Brilliant response, Keith. Thank you ever so much. Keith, thank you ever so much for being on this Investing Matters podcast with me. Um, what can I say? Hardman & Co, multidisciplinary financial consultancy and investment research firm, employing highly experienced analysts and professionals. 
wish you all very, very well going forward, Keith. And I'll probably pop down and visit you in the office at some stage. Thank you for your time, Peter. Very good to talk to you. Thank you for your time, Keith. It's been an absolute delight. Thank you, sir. Take care. God bless yeah. you. Thank you for taking the time to listen to Investing Matters. Be sure to check out the London Southeast website for free tools and info to research your next investment. You can also join in the conversation on our social media channels. And don't forget to subscribe to our YouTube channel for more content, including our CEO interviews. Catch you next time.